passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Go ahead and take out your outlines. And while you're doing that, I just want to comment that today, it seems like it's really hard to be able to find the truth, isn't it? You ever look in the media, how hard it is to find the truth? When President Trump was in office, he coined the phrase, fake news. And that really has stuck. Uh, A Gallup poll that I read recently said that 7 out of 10 Americans do not believe major news sources are telling them the truth. Yeah, wonder why, he says. Most people don't believe they can find the truth, they can read the truth. In fact, people now believe that the media is just a political manipulation machine. They're trying to reinforce what you already believe or get you to believe something you, they want you to believe. But to tell you the honest truth, while deception is a completely common in the media, there's a place in life where deception is even more prevalent than politics and the media today. And that is religious deception. Satan, he began in the Garden of Eden by trying to deceive Adam and Eve. And he's continued to do that ever since then. He's deceiving people away from the truth, trying to teach them a lie so they can believe a lie. And today we're going to study and look at what is it take for us to be the kind of people, the kind of Christians who are not deceived, who are not tricked by Satan into believing one of his lies. As a church, we've been studying our way through 2 Timothy, and we've been in 2 Timothy chapter 3 just recently, and if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that in the first half of 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first nine verses, Paul is talking to Timothy about religious scammers, people who are trying to deceive you and take you away from the truth. And the common denominator of religious scammers is they're in love with themselves. You can recognize that because they're actually worshiping themselves more than they're worshiping Jesus. And also he talked about how religious scammers work, that religious scammers love to worm their way into vulnerable people's lives, whether those are... um, Lonely women or vulnerable widows, they'd like to worm their way in and deceive people and lead them astray. And then last week, we saw how Paul switched in this chapter from describing how spiritual scammers work to how we can be Christians, strong Christians who can avoid being deceived and taken advantage of by Satan and his tricks and by spiritual scammers and their ploys. And What we find in the second half of this chapter is that Paul gives us three pillars of what it takes to be a strong Christian who is not deceived. And last week we looked at the very first pillar, and I have it on the top of your outline. It's this, strong Christians avoid deception by learning from the lives of great Christians that lived before them. The truth is that we all need spiritual heroes in our life. People who live before us that we can look up to, that we can learn from, that we can admire, and that we can follow. Especially spiritual heroes who handled times of suffering in their life, times of persecution or difficulty in their life really well. 
and Paul told us last week. By the way, he said, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Your time of difficulty in life and suffering may not have come yet, but it will come. The question is, how will we handle it? We want to find spiritual heroes, learn how they handled the hard time in their life, and then see if we can follow what they did. And that's exactly what Timothy did with the Apostle Paul. Timothy had Paul as his hero, and he studied how Paul handled persecutions, and he, he learned from that, and he tried to imitate that. So that was the first pillar. Christians have find and follow godly heroes. Today we're going to get to the second pillar, actually the second two pillars of what it takes to be a strong Christian. And that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. So I'd like to ask you to take out your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and when you um, stand out of reverence for God's Word, if you have a chance, follow along with your eyes and your copy of God's Word, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 17, and that'll be the text that we study today. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That ends the reading of God's Word. You can be seated. The first point that I want to make comes from verses 14 and 15, and this is what it is. It says, strong Christians avoid deception by having deep-rooted biblical convictions. It says this here in verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from child you've, childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What I want to do is I want to just break this down and go through a few key words and highlight those and then we'll just show you how this comes together really nicely. The first thing I'd like to point out to you is the word learned. And it means what you were discipled in or what you have been taught in. Timothy, don't deviate from what you have been taught. Don't go out there and follow the latest fads. Don't give in to the cultural pressure. Continue in what you were taught when you were a child, what you were taught when you were young. And that's a challenge, because all of us like shiny objects. All of us like things that are new. All of us like to find and follow the latest rage out there. But Paul says to Timothy, when it comes to religious truth, stick to what you've been taught about Jesus Christ and don't deviate from it, because everything else is an error. And he also points this out. He says, the terms firmly believed. That means the convictions that you hold as true, even if you cannot always clearly articulate why they are true. 
Paul or Timothy, stick to your convictions about who Jesus Christ is, about what Jesus Christ did for you. Here's the problem that Timothy is facing. Paul is in prison. He is in Rome. He is out of sight, nowhere to get a hold of him. He can't text Paul. He can't talk to Paul. But remember who Timothy is. He began traveling with Paul when he was only a teenager. Timothy is a young guy. He is a relatively inexperienced guy. He has been put in charge of pastoring the church of Ephesus, which is a mega church. Do you think there's all kinds of people that are giving him problems and issues and questions that he does not have the answers to? Yes! A ton of things. And he cannot text Paul. So he feels like he's over his head all the time. And of course, you know that we've already seen there's a whole bunch of spiritual con men, con men in the city of Ephesus, and they're going to try and put Timothy into a corner. And he's not going to have the right answers, but he has nobody to talk to. And so what Paul says is you continue in the midst of that to hold firmly to what you believe and know is true, even if you don't have an answer at this point for why it is true. Say, that's a good question. I'm not changing what I believe, but I will get back to you on that. I've got to think some more on it. I've got to talk to people on it. I've got to learn more about it. But I'm not going to change right now. You see, this is what often happens. You get people that will come up to younger Christians or inexperienced Christians. They'll give them all kinds of questions. They'll force them into a corner. And then what sometimes people will do, younger Christians, they'll jettison their beliefs. Don't do that, Timothy. Maybe an example of that is sometimes how the Jehovah's Witnesses work. You know, they go door to door and, and they say, can we come in and just have a conversation about the Bible? I'm going to tell you what the, what the Bible says. And actually what they have is a very carefully crafted sales pitch to try and get you to jettison the last 2,000 years of Christian history and faith. That's what it is. They want to tell you that Jesus really isn't God, and Jesus really didn't die for your sins. And by the way, you think that's secondhand? That's not. That's firsthand. When I was 23 years old, I had a Jehovah's Witness sit down with me and tell me why I should not believe that Jesus is God. They gave me a pamphlet. I read it, and I was like, wow, I didn't know any of this. This is really good information. And I was left with a crisis. Do I believe what I've been taught? brought up to believe? Do I believe what my parents believed? Do I believe what my Sunday school teachers taught me and all the pastors taught me? Or do I believe this pamphlet that now has me put into a corner? And I remember that time I said, okay, I'll take the pamphlet. I have to get back to you on this. And I started researching that pamphlet and started looking at it on the internet and reading books. And what I came to believe and come to discover is that pamphlet is a piece of junk. It's filled with lies. It's misstatements. It's not true at all. In fact, I came away with a much more solid belief in the historic Christian faith than ever. But the point is, when you have those crisis moments where you don't have answers, you have to hold on to your faith while you are researching them out. And that is what Paul is saying to Timothy. And this is not just true of a Jehovah's Witness coming to your door. If you're a student, I want to talk to you. When you go to college, I almost guarantee you that there'll be a professor there 
who is not in favor of your faith in Christ. There'll be a professor there who is well-schooled at pushing you into a corner and making you look foolish and you won't have all the answers. And I've talked to people who have graduated here from Crosswinds. I can think of at least two right now who graduated from here, went to college, had professors push them in the corner, and they jettisoned their faith. And the reality is they need to say, I need to hold on to my faith. I need to think about it some more. I need to study what you have to say till I get some answers. But I'm not going to walk away from Jesus. Students, expect that will happen. Hold to your faith and don't give up on it, which is exactly what Paul is saying for Timothy to do. Now, how do you hold to your faith in these times where you don't have good answers, when someone has challenged you on the historic Christian faith? This is what Paul says. He says, remember from who you learned it. Remember who taught you these things. In other words, the character of our life helps others trust the truth we teach about Jesus with our life. Timothy, remember the character of your teachers. They are trustworthy people. And who were Timothy's teachers? I'm sure there were many, but three came to mind. The one is the obvious one, which is the Apostle Paul, his best friend. You know you can trust me. And I may not... You may not have an answer at the moment, but you can trust my character and then I'm telling you the absolute truth about Jesus. And the truth is the same. When we are discipling people who are young in the faith, we're not going to be able to give them every answer they need for their faith. But if they trust our character, they see that our faith is lived out, they see the transformation that Jesus has made in our life, then when they have those gaps... They say, I may not have an answer, but I really trust the person who taught me the truth about Jesus. They're a person whose character I admire. There's a second group of people who were very influential in Timothy's life who taught him. You may not realize this, but that was his mother and his grandmother were his early teachers. Remember how Paul says this? How from childhood, he said, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings Timothy developed his convictions about Jesus not just from Paul's teaching and character, but from his mother and grandmother's teaching and their character. I trust what my mom told me about Jesus. I know what kind of woman she is. And we see this in the very beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Timothy's mother and his grandmother were known for having a very sincere faith, a very genuine faith, a very pure faith. Now, you may wonder, where was Timothy's father? We don't know. We know he's a Gentile. <laughs> Maybe it's, Timothy grew up in one of those homes where it's mom's there and dad's absent all the time or completely absent. We don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. His mom did a good job. His grandmother did a good job pouring into his life the truth of Scripture from the point of infancy. 
In fact, the word for infancy there is literally used to describe a newborn baby or an extremely young toddler, like sub one years old. His mother is teaching him the scriptures before he can even speak a word. What an amazing picture. Give you a little bit of his historical background about the role of mothers in training up their children in um, the Jewish life. In fact, mothers, it was their job that before the age of five, they were the primary or almost the sole teacher, spiritual teacher of their children. Mothers were, Jewish mothers were encouraged to help their children know the scriptures as well as they knew their own name. Jewish mothers took this very seriously to pour into their children their, the Bible. And I wanted to give you a little bit of extra help on this because I know there's a lot of people who are parents and how do we pour into our kids the Bible and the scriptures at a young age and how can we do that? Here's some interesting background information. How Jewish parents taught their children the word of God. Three things. Number one, they taught their children as they went about daily life. This is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. So you have mothers and dads. What they would do is go for a family walk and they'd talk about God and creation as they pointed to the sun. They'd point out the flowers and how God made these things. And look at the beauty and the intricacy. Every single thing was a platform to teach them about the God who loved them. And by the way, mom and dad, it's your job to initiate those conversations. That's your role. Everything you can. Next thing we know is this. They taught their children by having them memorize Scripture. And this is more coming out of history than this text, but this text is still true. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you, says Psalm 119. Jewish parents did everything they could to teach their kids Scripture and to memorize Scripture. The idea was you could help your children memorize Scripture when they were young, so that way they'd be able to quote the scripture when they were old. One of the things we have here at Crosswinds, we have an Awana program. And one of the things I love about the Awana program is kids are learning Bible verses. Get the word of God into their heart when they're young. So that way when they have a challenge in their life, what does the Holy Spirit do? He brings back the word of God that's been hid in their heart when they were a child. This is the way the Jewish parents would do things. Another thing that they would do when they would teach their children was this. They taught their children by catechism. And not officially a catechism, but it was a Jewish version of a catechism. A catechism is simply a set of questions and answers. Questions about life and what does God's word say about those questions about life. For instance, oh, these are some questions out of a modern catechism. Why did God create us? Or, what's our only hope in life and death? In fact, I would commend you, if you have children or grandchildren, work through a modern-day catechism. I put this in your notes here. The New City Catechism is 52 questions. You can get the New City Catechism for kids. It's a real little, short, simple. 
just the basic important questions about life and how does the Bible answer those things in two or three sentences. Getting those questions and answers into children's hearts. So, the first thing we see, or the second thing we see, because the first thing was actually a, a strong Christian who avoids deception has carefully found and chosen their heroes so they can imitate them and learn from them. The second pillar we see of a strong Christian who avoids deception is they have strong convictions. Even if they don't have an answer, they'll still hold to their faith while they learn the answers for their faith. The third thing, which is very important, is this. Strong Christians avoid deception by holding to the Word of God. Very important stuff. Verse 15 says, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to focus on the last part. The sacred writings, as Paul speaks about it here in this particular context, is talking about the Old Testament. And he's saying the Old Testament is sufficient enough to make you wise for salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the Old Testament has enough in it to lead you to Jesus. How does it do that? He just walk you through some of these things. Like, for instance, the Old Testament tells us our problem. The problem is sin. The Old Testament tells us the only solution to sin is a blood sacrifice. The Old Testament tells us of a sacrificial system, but it also tells us that sacrificial system is broken. It doesn't really work. It has to be done again and again. The Old Testament consistently talked about God was sending a Savior, a Messiah that was coming. The Old Testament talked about the fact that the only way to be saved was by faith, not by works. How is Abraham saved? By faith. David, by faith. Moses, by faith. This was all in the Old Testament, setting you up for the coming of Jesus. Now we're going to get into verses 16 and 17, which I'm going to tell you this is my favorite part of this message. In fact, this is such an important part of this message that next week we're going to come back and I'm going to platform even further just on verses 16 and 17. Because verses 16 and 17 get into the Word of God, what is it, and why we trust it so much here at Crosswinds, which is why I'm going to give two weeks to these verses. But let me go ahead and go through them right now. Here's the first thing it says. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, or all Scripture is inspired by God. Let me work through this word by word. First of all is the word all. Not parts of the Bible, but all of the Bible is breathed out by God. Now, it's fashionable right now in our cultural climate for some really people who are trying to be woke, who are trying to be hip. They will say what all of the Bible is not God's Word. Some of the Bible is God's Word. 
they'll say parts of the Bible are clearly wrong, clearly out of touch with what God is doing. If you go to the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, I have it right off their website. They'll sit there and say, right on their website, that we believe the writers of the Bible sometimes missed what God was saying or doing or that he's doing something different now. So you can, if you disagree with a part of your Bible, you can cross out part of your Bible. That's not what the Scripture says. All Scripture is breathed out by God from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, typically, the people who like to cross out parts of their Bible, you know what they do? They just cross about the parts they disagree with. They never want to cross out the parts they like. It's favoritism. Jesus says this about the Bible. And if he called them gods of whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. What Jesus is saying is you cannot take out part of the scripture and break part of it away. Maybe a good illustration is a windshield. Can you take out part of the glass in your windshield without shattering all the glass? Absolutely not. If you take out part of the windshield, Everything shatters. And that is the same thing when it comes to the Scripture. All the Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture, by the way, let me explain this to you. It means writings, and in the Bible it refers to the words of God given to us in his Bible, in the, in the Bible. By the way, it refers to the Old Testament, but also it refers to the New Testament, let me show you this. This will be fascinating for some of you. Even while the New Testament was being still written, the New Testament was considered the very words of God. For those people who say to you that the New Testament wasn't considered the words of God till hundreds of years later in a council when they made it the word of God, that's not true. All those councils did hundreds of years later was formally recognize what had already been taking place, which was recognition of the New Testament as the very words of God. Now this will be fascinating for you. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. This is, a labor, this is a letter even before the one we're studying that Paul wrote to Timothy. Speaking about the elders, he says this, For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Both of these quotes, Paul says, are coming from the Scriptures, the words of God. Where does the first quote come from? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Makes good sense. That's the Old Testament. But what about this second quote, where a laborer deserves his wages? Is it found anywhere in the Old Testament? No. You know who said that quote? Jesus. You know where it is found? The Gospel of Luke. Luke 10, verse 7. And what we find is Paul just said, the Scripture says, then he quoted from the Old Testament, and then he quoted from the New Testament, that had just been written. Paul is recognizing Luke's letter as Scripture. We go a little further. Let's look at uh, 2 Peter, for instance, another example of this. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, 
just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen. That's right, Peter. Some of the things Paul says are hard to understand. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Paul has just called, excuse me, Peter has just called Paul and his, Paul's letters scripture and said that people twist them like they do the other scriptures, the Old Testament writings. So Peter has considered Paul's letters to be the very scriptures, like the Old Testament. Paul has considered Luke letter, Luke's letter to be scripture, like the Old Testament. So we have New Testament letters being formally recognized as Scripture itself and put on par with the Old Testament while they are still being written, not hundreds of years later. Would you like some further proof? By the way, Paul insisted his letters be read to entire churches. In other words, the letter he was writing was applicable to lots of people. 1 Thessalonians 5.27 I put you under oath before the Lord. Have this letter read to all the brothers. This applies to everyone. Also, Paul knew that his letters should be shared with other churches. Even though he wrote a a letter like to the church of Colossians, it had value as Scripture that transcended that particular church and should be read to other churches. Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. In other words, these letters are more than just for one church. They're for other churches, which is why we study Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's applicable to our church as well. Something else, Paul insisted his letters, by the way, when he wrote them, were not written by his own wisdom, but they are written by God himself. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. You think you're spiritual? Just acknowledge what I'm saying to you is from God. Either he's got a huge ego, or he knows he's writing Scripture continues. Paul says this, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul's like, I'm not speaking my own words. These are not my own wisdom. These are the very words of God taught by the Spirit. So we've seen this. All Scripture, not parts of the Bible, All of this is Scripture, and it's the very words of God. And the next thing we see is this. It's breathed out. This doesn't mean God breathed into the biblical authors, allowing them to write their own words. It means God spoke through the biblical authors, writing his own words. Sometimes you'll see a translation that says, all Scripture is inspired by God. 
No, that's a valid translation, but the problem is that inspired is a term that sometimes can be misunderstood. Because, you know, if you have too much caffeine, you can feel inspired to write something down. And the idea is that you, it's you having energy and you're creating something. But that's not how the scriptures came about. Men didn't write their own words. They wrote, or I should say, God wrote his words through men, which is why I like the way the ESV translates this. All scripture is literally breathed out by God. Their words spoken directly by God to us using a human author so God could say exactly what he wanted to say. So we can look at it this way. The Bible is different. Even though the Bible has 66 books in it, it's written by 40 different authors, the Bible is actually one book, not 66. The Bible is written by one author. 40 different people wrote it down, but God is the author because all Scripture is literally the breath of God. It is literally spoken out by God. This is why this book, even though it took thousands of years to write, even though it's written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, even though it was written by people who were kings, shepherds, farmers, fishermen, the whole thing fits together like a jigsaw puzzle. And it's, it's not contradicting one another. It's supplementing and fitting together with one another because God is ultimately the author of the whole thing. This book is literally spoken by God, breathed out by God, is what this verse says. By the way, I should mention that God's words, when he speaks something, are powerful, extremely authoritative. The book of Genesis says, God spoke and things were created. God spoke, something came out of nothing. God spoke, light came out of darkness. God spoke, Life came where there was death. That is the power of God's words when he speaks them. If that's the power of God's words to create this universe. What is the power of God's words spoken in this book when we read them? God's words in this book have the power to create spiritual life. To convict us of sin to open our eyes to see the beauty and awesomeness of Jesus, our Savior. Because these words are literally alive. They're God's words. By the way, I should mention that Peter affirms everything I just talked to you about that Paul said. Peter says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Men didn't make this up in their heads. But men spoke from God when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Because God was speaking his words, the scripture says, through men who wrote down exactly what God wanted them to say. Not because it was their will, it was God's will. And look at the power of the word of God in the book of Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This book 
is literally alive. You cannot read this book and protect yourself from this book. No matter how much you erect in the way of um, defenses against it, the Word of God pierces right through it, goes down to your heart, convicts you of sin, and changes your life. I love the way Spurgeon answered this question. He was asked, he was asked in his day, how can you defend that you teach the Bible, that old book? He said, I don't need to defend the Bible. The Bible's like a lion. All you do is let it out of its cage, it'll defend itself. Because the Bible is alive. It is the very word of God. And God's words create life out of death, create light out of darkness. That's why we read this book. Now, not only is all Scripture inspired by God, and literally is this God's Word, but all Scripture, he says, is profitable. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is good for us. And then he gives us two categories of how it's good for us. The first two have to do with doctrine and right thinking. The next two have to do with living and right living. So the Bible teaches us how to think right and how to live right. Here they are. The Bible is profitable for teaching us the right way to think. It's profitable for teaching. Teaching is telling people the truth. Like the Bible tells us the truth about where we came from. You may go to school and they tell you, you evolved out of an ape or you evolved out of a cosmic puddle. That's not true. The Bible says that you and I were fearfully and wonderfully created by God. That this entire universe and our planet didn't come out of nothing. God created it all. That is the truth. Don't believe a lie. The Bible says there was a first Adam and there was a first Eve. That's the truth. Not an ape. That's not your background. The Bible teaches you the truth and wants you to believe the truth. And by the way, all scriptural is not just the Word of God, but all Scripture is profitable. Let me mention this. There are some spiritual scammers out there who will be telling you nowadays that we can jettison the Old Testament that we shouldn't read the Old Testament. We shouldn't study the Old Testament. It's old, right? That's not what the Scripture says. All Scripture, Old and New Testament, is profitable for you. Where do we learn about our origins? The Old Testament. We need that truth. Not as only is uh, the Bible profitable for teaching us the truth, but it's Profitable for reproof. Reproof means correcting. It means correcting one's thinking. When we read the scriptures, we will regularly find ourselves convicted by God. Convicted of our sin. Convicted of our selfishness. Some people will say, I don't like to read the Bible because I'm always convicted. I feel bad. <laughs> That's a bad way of thinking about things. When the Bible convicts you about something... It's because it's showing you the truth 
and taking you away from error. Remember when your kids were little and you talked to them about Santa Claus? Some people did. Oh, and Santa Claus comes down the chimney and gives you the presents. That's error. That's a lie. We all know that. The problem is that somebody has to tell the kids somewhere along the line that Santa Claus isn't real. You've got to be honest with them. Because if you have a 16-year-old running around town talking about Santa Claus delivering presents on Christmas morning, that's like a fool. Somebody didn't love him enough to tell him the truth. The Bible loves us enough to tell us the truth about who we are, to tell us the truth about what God has done for us. So when the Scriptures convict us of wrong thinking, it's a good thing. It's because God loves us. He wants to tell us the truth. So the Bible is profitable, and it helps us to think rightly, and it corrects our wrong thinking. But the Bible is also profitable because it teaches us the right way to live. This word correction, it literally means straightening out what is crooked. The Bible straightens out crooked living in our life. Not just wrong thinking, but wrong living. That's what the Bible is profitable for. It helps us to live the right way. It teaches us the right way to live sexually. It teaches us the right way to live relationally. It doesn't just correct us in our living, but it trains us for righteousness. So it doesn't just straighten us out when we're crooked about what is wrong about what our living, but it shows us the right way to live. So we walk wisely in this world. We live wisely in this world. Now, when we often have a question about how to live, the place we typically go to is Google. We Google it to find out what the crowd says is the right way to live. The Bible says, don't Google your questions. Go to this book with your questions. This book is literally the very words of God. It has the answers for how we should live, and it straightens out wrong living. Now, some of you are saying, well, I get it. Uh, you're just overstating your point, Kurt. You know, I, I, we go to the Bible, and it does teach us some things, but it doesn't teach us everything we need. I still go back to Google, and I need to get the wisdom of philosophers, and I need to get the wisdom of psychologists to help me, you know, platform to learn more. And to that I would say, keep reading the text. What does it say? The Bible equips us with everything we need for every good work. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scripture says the Bible gives us every single thing we need to live rightly for God. It teaches us how to be saved and how to live for Jesus. In fact, I like the way the Greek says it here. It's a play on words. It says the Bible makes us super equipped, completely and totally equipped. There is nothing lacking in this book to be able to live a good and wise life for God. It's all in here. If you could take all the books and all the media out of your life and only have one thing, and it was the Bible, you would have every single thing you need to know God and to live for him in this book, which is why we always keep our finger in this text. 
I cannot commend you highly enough the word of God that you hold in your hands. Now, what's our summary today? There's a lot of spiritual scammers out there. A lot of spiritual deceivers out there. But a good Christian, a strong Christian, bases their life on three pillars. They carefully find and follow scriptural heroes that shows them how to go through hard times and suffering well. Not only that, but they firmly hold to their convictions when they don't have all the answers. And number three, strong Christians firmly hold to the Word of God because they know it has every single thing they need to know God and live a life faithful for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these three pillars that we so desperately need in our life. Heroes to follow, convictions to hold to, and the Word of God that we hold in our hands. May we be men and women who love your word, who constantly search in your word, knowing that everything we need to please you and to live for you and to know you is found in your word. We thank you so much for giving us your word, a super complete book. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.